I've been a Christian for a long time now. It's kind of funny. I, I became a Christian later in life, but now I'm older, so it's a long time ago. And I'm still fascinated by all the different types of believers that there are. Everybody has their own individual thing, their own individual way of, of following. Here's what I mean by that. I've met some extremely successful people, business successful people, wealthy people, and I've met some that are just such solid believers. They always praise God for every material blessing that they receive. I've met some believers who are elderly, who've been walking with God for the majority of their lives, and I'm always intrigued and amazed by Intrigued, that was for you, Dennis. How they can look back at their lives and, and how they can see God's hand in every single situation that they've gone through. I've met some very sincere, emotional believers. I'm not really an emotional person. Those of you who know me know that. Those who are familiar with Enneagrams, I'm an eight. And if you know what an eight is, I'm not emotional. But I've met some believers who just tear up whenever they consider God's love for them. Whenever they meet somebody that needs more of God's love, they, they just get all emotional, and that just blows me away. Then I've met some of the kind of the alpha type believers who, who think of themselves as, as military officers, and they go out every day, and they're leading the army on behalf of God, and they're all fired up to do the work of God, and I love that. I've met some believers who are just loving and they're just filled with joy, and they just they can't get over God's love for them. And that allows them to cover everyone around them with that same kind of joy. And, and of course, there's an endless array of types of believers. But some of the most fascinating and inspirational believers that I've encountered over the years are the believers who hold fast, who hold on to their faith when most people wouldn't do that or when most people would think that a person shouldn't do that. Andy calls them believes in spite of believers. We've all probably met a believes in spite of believer. They're the people who, no matter what's going on in their lives, whether it's health issues or money issues or addiction issues or housing issues or family issues, whatever it is, they remain faithful. Their faith remains unshakable. Nothing shakes the foundations of their faith. Now, Full disclosure, I probably find them to be the most intriguing and interesting because it was one of these believes in spite of believers that led me to Jesus. And I've shared that story with you before, and I'm sure I'll share it again. But suffice it to say, when I encountered him, he was a coworker of mine. This guy had so many things go wrong in his life, so many things. He'd lost everything, but notwithstanding he lived every single day with joy and with, with peace and with this love that I couldn't explain and this faith. And he lived with a certainty. And when I saw that, I had to understand why. So I asked him and he pointed me to Jesus. And when I read the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, go through the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So John's the fourth book of the New Testament. The Gospel of John is sort of the gospel where I tell everybody to start. And in the Gospel of John, I found evidence in that book that was so compelling that even for, for me, as a, as a trained 
lawyer, as a person who developed a skill in discovering and examining and evaluating and presenting evidence, I I became a follower as well. It was so compelling. Because see, up until that time, I'd always dismissed the claims of faith of Christians as at best as indefensible silliness. It's like, okay, you want to believe that? Fine, go ahead. And actually, there were times I just thought, that is just nonsense. I had no idea that there would be any credible evidence at all, let alone compelling evidence, let alone irrefutable evidence that the Apostle John left us with. Maybe you're a follower today or at least you're curious about the whole believe in Jesus thing because you've also encountered these types of people and you want what they have because if they're doing it right, it is compelling. It is attractive. I think it's safe to say that we'd all like to be a believes in spite of person at least a little bit more than we are today. Wouldn't it be amazing to have that kind of confidence, to have that kind of peace, to have that kind of joy in your life all the time, consistently? Well, if you think that would be attractive, I have some very good news for you. That kind of faith is available to every single one of us. There is more evidence that led me to faith in Jesus than I ever thought there could be. I just didn't know about it until I looked. And, and, and this is really amazing. That's exactly how Jesus set it up. Jesus knew that it would work like that. And that's what John wrote about in his gospel. Jesus gave us enough evidence to believe, and John wanted people to know what he knew. And John wanted people to hear what he'd heard. And John wanted people to see what he'd seen so that they could believe as deeply as he believed. Because our faith... Christianity, faith in Jesus, isn't just about superficially believing. And it's not about taking everything only by faith all the time. John, Peter, James, all the lads, they didn't follow Jesus only because of faith. They followed Jesus because of what they actually saw. And they followed Jesus because of what they actually heard. John encouraged the readers of his account of the life of Jesus in the same way. Here's what John said about Jesus in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 1. Here's what he said. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, from the beginning, and here from the beginning isn't referring to the beginning, like in the beginning. It's not referring to the beginning of creation. It's referring to the beginning of Jesus's ministry on earth from the time that they started following him around. John was saying, we were there. And we, and that we in that sentence means we, John, and and Peter, and James, and all the fellas, they saw it, and they heard it all themselves. They didn't see a ghost. They didn't have a mass delusion. John wants us to know they saw everything for real. And that's what John does. He wants to tell everyone about it. 
The life appeared. Jesus appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. The life appeared And John said it this way, I know what I saw. I know what I experienced. God came to earth in the form of a human. And John says, and I met the guy. I met him. And he was my rabbi. And he was my friend. And he is my savior. And I'm telling you about him. I'm telling you what I saw. And I'm telling you what I heard. So that he can be your savior too. As we talked about last week, John outlived all of his friends. He was the last of Jesus' disciples. And he gave us this story. He gave us an account of that ministry regarding Jesus. But in his account, in the gospel account in the book of John, John was not content to just tell us what happened. John had an agenda. John wanted something to happen to us. John wanted the same thing to happen to us that happened to him after he encountered the Son of God. Well, last week, we saw John's explanation for why he wanted to leave us with this evidence. Remember that? We'll go back to it in John 20, verse 30, is toward the end of John's gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones that are recorded in this book. So John kind of starts off his gospel by saying there were so many things he did. We followed him around for three years. There were so many miraculous signs that he did. I didn't even include them all. I didn't even include them in my book, in my gospel. But he did tell us about some of them. And then he gives us the purpose of why he picked the ones that he picked to tell us about. Verse 31. But these are written, and we're talking about the seven signs in the gospel of John. These signs are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and... That by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John wrote his gospel so that you would believe and that by believing you would have eternal life. That was his purpose. That's the purpose statement. That's why John wanted to write his gospel. That's why John wants people to read his gospel. Throughout his gospel, John emphasized that believers in Jesus will have life. will have a different kind of life. will have an eternal life. And then he told us eternal life is not just about being dead. It's not something that only starts when you die. Eternal life is living this life, this life on this side of heaven, knowing Jesus and knowing what the future holds. John taught that when we understand that there's something beyond this life, then we can live this life in a very different way. When we understand that this isn't all that there is, we're different. In his gospel, John provided us with the events that brought him into both fellowship and followship. I made that word up, but it works. With Jesus. And John is hoping that the conversations and the events and the signs that he describes in his gospel will do the very same thing for you and do the very same thing for me. And that's why he organized his gospel around those seven signs or seven events that point to the identity of Jesus. So today, 
In the second installment of our series, Bystander, we're going to be looking at the second sign. Now, if you missed the first part, go back to YouTube, type in Hammock Street Church, you'll find us. You can go to find it on Facebook as well. You can find it on our website as well. Now, today we're looking at the second sign that is known as the healing of the nobleman's son. So that's the sign we're going to be looking at today. So let's pray, and then we'll have a look. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us here today as your people, as your community. Thank you for giving us this gospel, giving us this book, allowing us to see what they saw and hear what they heard so that we can believe as they believed. God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would keep our hearts and minds open so that we can accept your words, accept what you've said, and take them into our lives. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week, remember the first sign? What was it? Anybody? The wedding at Cana. Quick recap. Jesus went to a wedding, and his mom says to him, son, they need your help. To which Jesus replies, ma, I came to save the world, not this wedding. But he saved the wedding anyway, because his mom asked him, and he's a good Jewish boy. (laughs) After the wedding which was up in the Galilee region, which is in the northern part of the country we now know as Israel, Jesus and the guys headed down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jerusalem is to the south. Whenever you read, remember that Jesus is is going to Jerusalem, you have to remember that every time he walked into Jerusalem, he was taking a huge risk. Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, there was trouble. That's one of the reasons he never stayed in Jerusalem very long. He would go and they'd leave, right? He'd get out. So every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, the disciples got a little nervous. And the other people who were tagging along with Jesus got a little concerned because they know something's going to happen. This is going to be bad for us. It was just inevitable that Jesus was going to say or do something in Jerusalem that's going to get the religious leaders or get the Romans all riled up. Well, in our next story, things follow the same pattern. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover. We just kind of talked about the Passover. We went through the communion ceremony. And Jesus went right to the temple. And when he got to the temple, he became outraged at what he saw. You'll remember this scene. John chapter 2, verse 14. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Remember that? Jesus overturns the tables for the money changers. I'm filling some details, make you understand what's going on here. Now, remember that people came to Jerusalem during the Jewish festivals. It's part of the Jewish tradition that when you live in that region, you go to Jerusalem for the, you went to Jerusalem for the festivals so that they could worship at the temple. The temple is no longer there. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. That's not a thing anymore, but that's what they did. Now, a big part of worship during that time was the sacrificing of animals. Now, because Jewish people came from all over the region, okay, they came from the countries we know of as Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and as far away as you you wouldn't believe how far away they came But because they came from all over the place, including other countries, it was easier for them to travel without their animals to sacrifice and then buy the animals when they got to the temple. 
Imagine that. You're going to sacrifice a cow. You're coming from Egypt. You don't have to walk your cow all the way from Egypt. It could die. It could get sick. It could slow you down. Who knows? So you, you wait. You, you say, I'll buy it when I get there. You would kind of do the same thing on vacation, right? You know, you don't, you don't buy two cases of water and then fly on the plane to New York with them. If you get thirsty in New York, you buy your stuff in New York, right? Does that make sense? But being from other countries, they, they had foreign money. So they had to exchange their money when they got to Jerusalem. They had to exchange whatever their currency was for the, for the Jewish currency, for the shekel, in order to buy the animals in Jerusalem. Well, that required people to change money. Like, you know, you, you go to the mall or you go to the airport and you always see those exchange booths for money, right? That, that's kind of the same thing. They're money changers. Well, in Jerusalem, the money changers made a habit of taking advantage of these foreign pilgrims by heavily skewing the exchange rates in their favor. Well, Jesus didn't like seeing his people ripped off, especially in the house of the Lord. That's why he was so outraged. Now, as you can imagine, when Jesus turned over the tables and Jesus yelled at the money changers, well, you don't do things like that at the temple. And the Jewish leaders got wind of all the commotion. But here's what's interesting. So they heard about somebody coming in and causing all this commotion. And so they rushed to the temple, but they didn't ask Jesus why he trashed the place. They didn't ask Jesus why he threw the vendors out. Instead, they asked him who he thought he was. Who do you think you are doing this? Here's how they put it. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who do you think you are that you can disrupt the way this temple operates? So then Jesus, in very cryptic fashion, tells them that, listen, if this temple is destroyed, Jesus himself would raise it again in three days. This temple took years to build. Jesus said, if it's torn down, I'll put it back up in three days. Now, in hindsight, we know what he was talking about. He was talking about his own death and his own return from the dead three days later, because you'll see that in verse 22, which is sort of out of place, but we'll read it just to continue on. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, that he's going to rebuild the temple in three days, and they all went, oh, now I see it. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. All right, so that's kind of a non sequitur. It's out of place, but comes next. So John brings this section of the scripture to a close when he writes this. Now while he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So here we're just seeing a formula and we're working up to today's story. But the formula is this, seeing is believing. You've heard that before, right? Seeing is believing. Now, it was during that same Jerusalem visit, just for historical context, that Jesus has a well-known conversation with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've heard that before. Then after that, Jesus and and the gang kind of head back to Galilee. So they go from Jerusalem in the south. They're going back up north to the Galilee region, which is where they're from. They go by way of Samaria. So you have Jerusalem in the south. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle. Uh, no. right. I tell that joke every time. And it was in Samaria that Jesus encounters the woman at the well. We've heard of her. And Jesus tells this woman everything about her life. And then he gently confronts her about her sin. And then he reveals to himself his status as the Savior, as the Messiah. And the woman, the Samaritan woman, is so overwhelmed by Jesus' grace toward her and his authority over her that she tells her people about him. And we go to verse 39 in John 4, 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay. And because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Okay, so after Jesus visits Samaria, he keeps on going north, so he makes his way back to Galilee, and that's where today's story picks up. Here's what John writes. John 4, verse 46. Again, this is the New International Version. If you want to follow along in a Bible, pick anyone you like. It'll all be close, okay? But this is the New International Version translation. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So we we kind of come full circle, right? First sign was in Cana in Galilee. Now he's kind of back up north again. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum in another town. So he's in Cana, and the son lay sick in Capernaum. Now, before we continue, I want you to note that the first sign Jesus gave, the turning water into wine, took place at a joyful occasion, a wedding. And we're about to see something that happens in connection with a tragic occasion with a sick child, which just shows us that Jesus is present in both celebration and sickness. Also, I want you just to keep this map in mind. You don't have to memorize it or anything. But if you can see the map, you see the red little teardrop or the, we'll say a drop of blood or something. That's Cana, okay? And slightly over to the right is Capernaum, okay? So Jesus is in Cana, the officer's son also in the same region, in the Galilee region, but he's over in Capernaum. Capernaum's about 25 miles away from Cana. So it's about an eight-hour walk if you're walking, Or it's a three-hour journey if you're riding a horse or you have a chariot or a cart taking you. Now, because this man was a royal official, it's likely he wasn't walking, okay? It's likely that he came from Capernaum to Cana by horse or by carriage or by chariot. Also, I want you to note this. The fact that he's a royal official tells us something about him. It tells us that he was likely a wealthy Jewish aristocrat, which would have made him a member of the Sadducee party. We talk about Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees are the ultra-religious Jews who ran the temple. And the Sadducees were the ultra-intellectual, powerful, wealthy Jewish leaders who were all kind of intertwined with the Roman government. The Sadducees believed that there was no afterlife, that there's nothing after this life. That's why they were sad, you see, right? They, I didn't make that up. They also believe that God determined the path of his people already. So because they believed in this predeterminism, they, they didn't have to ask God for anything for their lives because it was already w- willed to happen. God had already predetermined that was going to happen to them. I want you to hold on to that thought because it's going to become relevant in a minute. Anyway, verse 47, when this man, the official, heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. So he came down from Capernaum and he begged Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him and heal his son who was close to death. His son's about to die. So you should start to see this now. The official made probably a three-hour trip to Cana and he didn't come as a typically cynical Sadducee, but he came as a desperate father. He came as a father who was terrified that his son, his son whom he loved, was about to die. And when this man heard that Jesus was close by when he was in the Galilee region, the man made the three-hour trek. 
to Cana, and when he got there, he begged Jesus to travel back to Capernaum with him to heal his son. Okay? Did you catch that? When he heard, when the man heard that Jesus was in Galilee. See, the official had never met Jesus before. And there wasn't an internet, so he didn't pull it up and read all this stuff on Jesus. He didn't go to YouTube and watch these Jesus clips that everybody put up. He just heard about him. And when he heard where Jesus was, he did whatever he had to do to get to Jesus so he could bring him back to Capernaum to heal his son. Now, it's interesting. In the original Greek text, it makes the official's request of Jesus even more emphatic than the word begging. See, it really should say he begged and begged and begged. It really should say he nagged Jesus. Sir, my son is dying. What will it take to get you to come back with me to Capernaum and heal him? Can you relate to that sentiment? When we find ourselves in this kind of urgent situation with a loved one, is there anything we won't do? Of course not. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll move heaven and earth to find a solution. And in those situations, our prayers are the most sincere prayers we can pray. Our prayers, like, in that situation, is, help, help, God, please help. I'll do anything you say. Well, here's what Jesus said next. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Now, now by the way, that sounds kind of snarky, doesn't it? Like, they're saying, hey, I believe in you, but I need to see you heal my son. And he's going, you people, you got to see things. It, it wasn't really snarky, actually. He wasn't rolling his eyes. He wasn't sighing when he said it. It's actually very direct. And his response to the man is also directed to everybody who is listening because these things didn't happen in a little conference room one-on-one. -on -one. They happened out in public and people were around and everybody was listening. Everybody wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. So in response to the official's request, Jesus is simply stating a fact. He's saying, listen, I get it. I understand the only way you people are going to believe me and accept that I am who I say that I am is if you see me do something, if you see me perform. Because I understand seeing is believing. But the official had traveled a long way to meet this miracle man who he'd only heard rumors about. He traveled a long way to get this guy Jesus to heal his son. So the official begs again, verse 49. The official says, Sir, Come down, it's urgent, before my child dies. So out of sheer desperation, the official, remember, this is a Sadducee, he's wealthy, he's powerful, and he's talking to this dusty, uncredentialed teacher, this rabbi, he's got to lower himself to plead for help from this Jesus guy. Sir, please, right now, come back, help me save my child. So then Jesus gave him something to talk about. Hang on a second. Let me ask you a question. What made the official so confident that Jesus could do that? What made the official so confident that Jesus could heal his son? What made him so confident that he was willing to think what he had to do? To come from Capernaum to Cana, he had to leave his son. He had to walk away from his dying son. He had to leave three hours away, six hours back, but you've got to assume he'd spend time there. He, he had to leave his family, his dying son. He had to make this journey. It was an unsafe journey too. And he had to try to bring Jesus back from Capernaum. What if Jesus wouldn't come back? What if his son died while he was away? Why was he willing to do all that? 
because of what he'd heard. He'd heard all of the eyewitness accounts of the works of Jesus. And because of all that he had heard, he was certain that if he could just get Jesus back to Capernaum with him, Jesus could heal his son. And if he couldn't, his son would die. But as it turned out, Jesus was far more powerful than the man ever anticipated. Jesus was far more amazing than the man ever imagined he could have been. So next, Jesus asked the official to do something that Jesus has been asking people to do all over the world ever since. Jesus says to the man, essentially, trust me. Trust me based on the testimony of people you don't know. Trust me based on the testimony of other people. Jesus asked the official to entrust the health of his beloved son to him based only on the stories that the official had heard about Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in verse 50. He says, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. In the Greek, actually, Jesus' command sounded almost casual. He says, eh, don't sweat it. It's done, done deal. He's, he's gonna live, don't worry about it. And the official must've been thinking, wait a minute. I came all this way and I'm supposed to go back without you? What am I gonna tell my wife? Honey, I got good news and bad news. He said he's healed, but I didn't bring him with me, right? But this one act set the pattern for believers to come to Jesus for the next 2,000 years. Think about it. We are also asked to take Jesus at his word based on the testimony of other people. We, today in 2022, are also asked to give our lives and our health and our finances and our futures and our children to Jesus based upon the testimony of people who knew him and who'd seen him. We're called today to go about our days while we still have unanswered prayers and all of us have unanswered prayers. But we're called to go about our days confident that there's something to all of this, something to this Jesus we're called to believe that he is who he claimed to be, and he demonstrated over and over again who he was. And when we encounter somebody who does this well, we can see what it means in their life. We see in them a life that reflects this joy and this peace and this confidence that's so compelling, that's so inspiring, that's so attractive. It's the reason I came to faith, because I saw that. And maybe it's the reason you came to faith too. Do you know what this means for us as followers of Jesus? It means that when we're carrying an unanswered prayer around, we shouldn't lose faith. Nothing should cause us to lose faith. When we're carrying an unanswered prayer around, it means we should still serve and we should still give and we should still pray and we should still gather and we should still continue to know that God is still there. He hasn't left us. God is at work in our lives all the time. Now, why do we have to do this? Well, people are watching. We don't know who, but people are watching. And a lot of times God is doing work in those people's lives because of our faithfulness. There are people around us, and parents, I want you to think about this. Your children are watching, and I know you don't want to think about it now, but they're going to move away one day. My kids prove that to me. My kids live in opposite corners of the country now. They're going to move away, but they're watching. They're watching to see if your faith is real. 
There are people around us every day who are going to give their lives to Jesus because of what they saw us do, because of our witness. Now, by the way, that should at the same time fill you with joy, but also make you very nervous, right? It's a high responsibility. So in today's passage, imagine what the official was thinking. He lowered himself to travel a long way to see this rumored miracle man. And by all appearances, he was turned away. He was rebuffed. Jesus didn't go back with him. He just said, go, your son's fine. Go, 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 go. He didn't get what he came for. And the people who accompanied him on the journey, they saw that happen. But the official didn't despair. Instead, he made a decision. He made the same decision that people have been making for the 2,000 years that followed, and that decision changed his life. The official decided to believe Jesus and to live as if what Jesus said was true, even though he couldn't yet see any evidence to support his belief. The text continues, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. So he said, okay, you say he's healed, he's healed, the man leaves. In faith, the official walked away from the only person who could heal his son, just because the official decided to trust him. He did what the Apostle Paul had described for the believers in Corinth. He walked by faith and not by sight. Okay, the story continues in John 4. While the man, while the official was still on his way, his servants met him with news that the boy was living. So he's on his way back, all right? And the servants came from Capernaum, so they kind of met him halfway. And he said, your boy's alive. But it was better than that because the boy wasn't just alive. He had been healed. We go to the next verse. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And at that moment, the official gets that, you know, when you see it in the movies, it's one of those, bam, you know, the lights come on for him. You know, time stands still. A chill runs down his spine. His eyes well up with tears. Because the father realized at that exact time, that's the same time at which Jesus said, your son will live. At the same moment when Jesus said, go, your son's going to live, that's the moment he got better. And we can guess that when he arrived back at home, his wife ran out and said to him, honey, there's been a miracle. So he and his whole household believed. You think? Yeah, seeing is believing. The man believed because others had seen, and then he got to see for himself. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee, walking by faith. From this account, we can see that walking by faith is not the same thing as walking by hope. And I'm talking about hope, like I hope, I hope, I hope. Or wishful thinking. It's not the same as walking by wishful thinking. It's living every single day as if Jesus is who he said he is. Walking by faith is living every single day as if what Jesus said is true, 100% true. It's living every day as if God really is your heavenly father. That's why Jesus said when you pray to God, address him as your father, our father in heaven. God is our perfect heavenly father. And whenever things don't seem to be working out the way you thought they would, the way you wanted them to, and whenever you can't understand how the scripture is supposed to apply to you, 
And whenever you wonder, why me? You can take comfort in knowing that your perfect heavenly father will not leave you to fend for yourself. To walk by faith is to live as if your sin really is forgiven. To live as if God isn't going to hold it against you. To live as if you don't have to keep confessing your sin to God over and over and over and over again. To live as if you understand that God's not looking for payback. He did you a favor and now you owe him. That's not what he's looking for. Your perfect heavenly father has it all handled. That's what Jesus taught. And that's what Jesus modeled. And that's why Jesus died, you see. He died for you. He died for me so that we can live for eternity with God as our perfect heavenly father. And when we go to him and we confess to him our sins and we repent, we turn from those sins and we turn to God and we say, God, I want to follow you with my life. I dedicate my life to you. I give you my heart. Then you can claim that gift of God's forgiveness for yourself. And you can claim eternal life too. And then you can spend the rest of your days living as if you really are unconditionally loved, not because of anything you did, but because of everything he's done. You see it? This changes everything. This changed the world. And, and, and the world didn't change because everybody got their prayers answered. And the world didn't change because everybody got what they wanted. The world changed because the world saw how the followers of Jesus in the face of troubles and calamities, and by the way, those troubles and calamities that they faced are far worse than anything we face today. I know we all think the world is worse than it's ever been and all that stuff. It ain't even true. Amen. You have Google. Look it up. Amen. They continued to walk in faith. They continued to love unconditionally. They continued to live as if their sins were truly forgiven. And they were able to do this by doing what Jesus told them to do. What did Jesus tell them to do? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, that kind of love changes relationships. That kind of love changes cultures. That kind of love changes nations. And it was that kind of love that changed the world. And we'll only be able to be a part of that kind of change, if we can learn to walk by faith, if we can learn to live with the confidence that our faith and our sacrifice and our commitment and our generosity are not in vain because they're anchored to something that is real and somebody that is real, that kind of life will, will, not might, will cause others to pay attention People will notice, and then they'll pause, and then they'll consider. If we can walk by faith, if we can live every moment of every day as if God is who God claims to be, and Jesus is who Jesus said he is, if you can live like that, if we can live like that, your life, my life, your lifestyle, my lifestyle will cause people to pause and wonder. It's been that way since the very beginning. All right, let's land this plane. By the end of this account, Jesus had been crucified and he'd risen from the dead and the disciples were all gathered with him. And as he was leaving them with some final things, well, that's when they started to learn. Jesus knew that the reason his people came back to faith, because remember, when they killed him, they scattered. 
But the reason they came back is because they saw him. They saw him die. They looked into the empty tomb, and then they were sitting there having a conversation. You'd believe too if you saw that, right? Well, Jesus knew these men were going to document their experiences. And Jesus knew that generation after generation were going to recognize what they recognized. Not because subsequent generations saw it themselves, but because the disciples saw it and recorded the testimony. And in that setting, Jesus made a statement to them. And that statement is really made for me and it's made for you. And here's what Jesus started off by saying. He said, because you have seen, you have believed. But then he says something. He said it to me and he said it to you and he said it to our children and he said it to their children. Here's what he said. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who in the future will believe based on And he turned to his disciples and he said, your testimonies, based on what you have seen and what you have heard. Isn't that cool? In sharing this story, John would remind us, John would say, look, I'm nothing special. I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm just a bystander. But it was important for me to document what I heard and what I saw so that you could embrace Jesus the way I embrace Jesus. I'm not telling you what I saw and heard just so you'll know what I saw and heard. This isn't about you just knowing what happened. It's not a history lesson. John would say, no. The reason I chose these particular incidents was so that you would believe. I don't want you just to know stuff. I want you to do something about it. I want you to respond the way I responded when I saw and I heard what I saw and what I heard. These things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And it's my prayer that through this journey together, perhaps you, by seeing and by hearing through the eyes and ears of John, would also believe if you haven't already, and that you too would have life in Jesus' name. Would you like to give yourself a life-changing blessing, I encourage you, go home and read the Gospel of John. BibleGateway.com, you can read all the free Bible you want. But don't just read it because it's the Bible. But I want you to read it because it's a story, because it's the account of an old man who saw and who heard. And if you do that, perhaps something will happen to you that no one can explain. One scientist put it this way, and then we'll be done. He was a lifelong atheist, and he came to Jesus after hearing the evidence, and here's what he said. It's not enough to read the notes on the page. At some point, you have to hear the music. And it's my hope and prayer that as you listen for God and as you read John's gospel, that you would hear the music and you would believe in Jesus, the only way to inherit an eternal life connected to the God of the universe who loved you enough to send his only son. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for this compelling evidence. We thank you that John recorded this book for us so that we might hear and we might see that we might come to you. God, I lift up all our families here, everyone here at Hammock Street, part of our community. Protect them this week, God. Keep them safe and close. Don't let them lose their faith. Don't let them lose their courage. Help them to know that you, Remain our Heavenly Father. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen.